This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. So to come at the uh, top of the hour, Dallas Stars chairman Jim Lights will tell us the story of Peter Klima and how they got him to uh, North America. Peter left us yesterday at the age of 58. Jim Lights and Nick Polano, the two gentlemen most responsible for getting him out and getting him into the NHL. Kevin Woodley from In Goal Magazine will talk to us about uh, the remaining eight. Well, I mean, there's not just eight, but the primary eight netminders remaining in the uh, Stanley Cup playoffs. But speaking of netminders, Jamie Storr was a fine one. Uh, I remember being at university at Guelph, and every time Owen Sound came to town, it was tough Scott Walker, it was Andrew Burnett filling the net, and it was Jamie Storr stopping every puck. Jamie Storr is now the president of the Oakville Blades, former NHL netminder with the Los Angeles Kings and Carolina Hurricanes as well. He joins me now. Jamie, how are you today? Thanks so much for doing this. Oh, no worries. Thanks for having me. Uh, the pleasure is, is mine. First of all, I, I should say the, the Oakville Blades, uh, congratulations, uh, will host the Centennial Cup, that is Canada's Junior A Championship, uh, next season at the 16-Mile Sports Complex. And a quick question for you as a, as a team president. How many calls did you get from uh, parents uh, around Ontario asking if they I know you guys have, I think you guys have rookie camp this weekend, uh, if they could get a tryout with Oakville, knowing that you'll be hosting this thing next year? Well, I, I, I think for, for first of all, Scott McCrory, our head coach and GM, has done a wonderful job and and basically orchestrating this whole thing, starting with the bid for the Centennial Cup um, and just all the information that goes on with it. But I think one of the bonuses, uh, especially for an organization that's going to be able to host, is uh, his job of recruiting. I think just got a lot easier. So um, I, I think he's excited yeah. about it. We're, <laughs> we're 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 excited for him. So. You know, this is um, this is a marvelous tournament, and you know, you, if you go back and, and you have a look, I mean, this this thing has gone through different uh, name changes. Whether it's you know RBC Cup and, and now it's the Centennial Cup. I mean, James Patrick played in this, Brent Sutter played in this, Rod Brindamore played in this. More current players, uh, Kale McCarr played back to back with the Brooks Bandits as well. Um, your your thoughts on? this tournament specifically like what is it i mean i've i've been to it before i i think it's wonderful i've you know was really happy as a as a an ojhl fan to see coburg win it a couple of, or get to the finals a, a couple of years ago um what is it about this tournament that holds intrigue for jamie store well i i think it's the biggest thing is we grew up with it right i grew up i played for the brampton capitals and i played no sound um you know dean lombardi when he was with the la kings uh, he talked about uh, taking a player from Canada over anywhere else because a kid grows up at seven years old playing best of seven series where everywhere else uh, it's just one game elimination. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we, we got to go home and go through this environment, uh, no different than the Memorial Cup, um, you know, the Centennial Cup now, uh, it's one of the hardest events to get to. Uh, you, you not only have to get through a 54-game season, but then you have to go through four best of seven series. Um, you know, it's, it's no different than the Stanley Cup finals right now where you've got injuries. Um, you, you know, it's teams staying together. It's the depth of the team. It's uh, players peaking at the right moment. Uh, not only, you know, do you have to get through four series, then all of a sudden you have to play the best from each of the other provinces. And one of the things I looked at yeah. going from OHL teams to USHL teams to even Ontario Junior Hockey League teams is if you break it down, into you know what do we have control over i can make any program exactly the same the only thing i don't have control over is the area that the program's located in which would then bring 
the amount of fans that they could seat every night for a game, which then brings in the income that allows them to then offer all the things for free. Um, so if you're in Brooks, um, you know, they, they can bring 3,500 fans in a game. Uh, they end up having 900,000 come in in the door, and all of a sudden they can buy all the skates. They can buy all the jerseys. So, so when you play against some of these teams, what you do find is all of a sudden they have four guys that are committed to top D1 schools on D, um, where you might only have one. You know, uh, and the reality is you get to see, um, you know, some of these uh, places that just uh, it's an amazing opportunity. You'd never get to play them during the regular season because of, uh, you, you know, where, where you're located at. So um, for these teams that get to this this event, uh, you know, when I first purchased the team in 2018, um, I was fortunate and unfortunate. I was fortunate to buy the team when they were in the finals. I was unfortunate that I had to then buy the rings for the team uh, the moment I purchased the team because they won the finals <laughs> and then went to the RBC, um, you know, yeah. and you go through the whole experience with them. But uh, what a great event to watch. We It was in Brooks, uh, uh, Alberta that year. Um, and uh, when you go through it, so the, the chance to have this in Oakville, um, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity for all these kids and for everyone that's going to be involved with it. And uh, we're just so fortunate mm-hmm. that it happened to us this year. You know, I live in uh, I live in Stovall, and I go to a lot of Junior A games um, at uh, Stovall Arena. You know, shout out Kenny Burrows and the Stovall Spirit. So I'm a big uh, Junior A fan and, and Junior A supporter. Uh, I am curious, like, what's the bid process like? Like, I'm familiar with you know what goes into to bidding for the Memorial Cup and what you know Saginaw had to do to get the Memorial Cup next season. What did Oakville need to do to get the uh, to, to get this tournament in Oakville? Well, so Scotty McCory would be the one that would be, to, be able to answer all your questions. He was the, the point person on this. We just had to okay everything. But I think, um, you know, it was a pretty extensive process that they, they had to go through. And I think, uh, you know, there was a, it was a, a revenue generator. It was being able to get the sponsorships that would be able to offset. Because it, it's a big purse to be able to run this event. Like, this doesn't go by um, where it's very, you know, small. And, and it, you know, th- there's a lot of uh, responsibility to go through. So, you know, it's a shout out to Scott for um, all the work that he's done. But he also, from being the commissioner of the league for eight years, from being a, a, a part owner of a team for a number of years, then from running teams for the last 10, 12 years, he knows the ins and outs of how um, everything works. So I think for him, he was very well prepared in putting the documents together and then working with the town of Oakville to make sure that they, they had their support. Um, but, but I think the, the, the biggest thing is that, uh, you know, it's a great opportunity. Um, you know, the city that it, it's coming to, um, you know, the facility that it has to host it, um, all those things that they come into play. And then uh, the fact that this will be the Ontario's, uh, you know, the Ontario Junior Hockey League's first year back of being able to host this event, um, it, it's going to be a great opportunity for the, the team as well. Uh, the the big junior A issue that we've seen in the past uh, week or so, which has been coming for a while as we understand it, um, the BCHL pulling out of the uh, the Hockey Canada operation and, and essentially pulling out uh, of Hockey Canada. How does that affect, well, I'll just focus on the OJ. How does that affect the OJHL? Does it in any way from your point of view? Well, I, I think the hardest part is, I, I, I know every league inside note now um, from being involved uh, after retiring. And I think um, every league's always going to feel they're better than they really are. And every league has a certain opportunity that they fulfill. Um, you know, the reality is the Ontario Junior Hockey League has a great asset of having players that they move on to the OHL as well as players that they can play from 16 through 20 
uh, to go to D3 or D1 schools or even Canadian University. Um, so it's a great opportunity. Uh, we've done a great job in making all these models in a position where all the owners, 22 owners, um, myself included, that if you run it properly, it can be a break even. Uh, where in the past, everything's basically been a loss. So you want to own a franchise, you're going to lose 150 to $200,000 every year. How long are you going to be able to do that? Um, so I think in some of these other markets, they're trying to sustain, um, you know, things that are just, you're not, you're, you're not able to consistently year after year. So in the BCHL, they might have three teams that are uh, fiscally making a profit every year because they're located far enough from, from everyone else that they're getting their fan base to attend. No different than, than London and the OHL or no different than some of these teams that have a lot of success where they have a great fan base and it helps generate income. Uh, but the problem is you might have only two or three teams that are capable of doing that. So then they see themselves as no different than the USHL or no different than an OHL team or a WHL team. But I can tell you from being inside the USHL, a lot of those programs do not make money. They have to have deep pockets because you're losing money every year. And if you're not willing to do it, then the team's going to fold. Um, so, you know, the problem with it is the BCHL wants to be on their own. They want to have, make up their own rules. Hockey Canada is a wonderful tool. It's uh, one of the biggest corporations in the world. It does a wonderful job in helping players move on. I've been underneath it my whole life. I have five gold medals sitting in a drawer here that I was fortunate enough to be a part of with them. And the reality is they have rules in place that help uh, protect all the players and owners and coaches and refs and everything um, inside of that. But you have to abide by their rules. Well, from the BCHL standpoint, the issue that you're going to run into is now no longer you're going to be associated with Hockey Canada. So the umbrella that it, that protects you is no longer over top of you. And I think what happens is the you know players that are playing there they're going to be a non-sanctioned league, no different than the NCDC in the U.S. You know what does that mean for us? It means that no longer if a player wants to move from the BCHL into the Ontario Junior Hockey League, uh, nothing has to transpire. The player can just come and sign. Uh, where if he wants to move to a sanctioned league in the U.S. or in Canada, you have to follow a trade process that has to be approved by both leagues through Hockey Canada. So if anything, um, you know, it just hangs them out to dry a little bit more where they're no longer a part of it. Um, their kids don't get to play in the, the U18, the World Junior A Challenge. They don't get to play for a national championship. So, um, you know, the hard part is they're isolating themselves to where all they exist in is within uh, their own boundaries. And, you know, you even look at, uh, all, it's going to affect them in different ways. And I think, you know, you, you go through peaks and valleys where you realize that, you know what, you think you're bigger than you are, and then eventually you come back. And I think from Hockey Canada's standpoint, I don't want to speak for anyone, but I think they want everyone to, to be a part of the process. And I think that uh, at the end of the day, you know, you, it's unfortunate that, that, that it's happening. But at the same token, I think that, uh, you know, everything will end up working out the way that it should in the long run. Uh, I know it's a big time for the OJ. Uh, Leamington's in, Buffalo's in, uh, the league looks healthy and vibrant. Um, let, let me close by asking you a goaltending question. I've only got about two minutes here, Jamie. We'll see if we can do it. From when you played to how the position is played now, what does Jamie Store notice right away? What are some of the main differences as a goaltender? Well, well, I, I text Kevin Week did Kevin Weeks daily because he was my partner in junior, and we and we you know joke yeah. around back and yeah. forth watching games. So the reality is, is you see the goalies nowadays very athletic, but um, it's the way they're taught. It's almost a lazier form. So you see they give up bad goals consistently. I was talking to Nelson Emerson with the Kings. 
the other day and I said, you know, it's not just one goalie. It's every goalie in the playoffs is letting them bad goals consistently. Um, you have one game where they don't, all of a sudden it's, it's not it, it's not the norm, right? But what you look at, a lot of it becomes just it's a slight laziness in and I think it's taught from a younger age in this RVH where they they stay off their knees and, you know, off corners where they're not in a position with a low attack, but it could be from an angle that could be a pass out. You saw Leon Dreisaitl's goalie banks off the goalie's back. Like, we yeah. used to call that a minor league goal. You're letting that goal, you're in the minors, right? Well, nowadays you find that goalies tend to play off their knees more. And Andre Vasilevsky, I'll leave you with this. Best goalie in the world. One of the best goalies to ever play the game. If I watched his games and I watched subtle things that what he was doing differently from when he was winning Stanley Cups and the best goal in the world to when he was just good, uh, he'd come off his knees up to his edges to, to get set for a shot. A lot of times if you're sliding in into in position, it's like sledding without a blade. So now all of a sudden you're off by just half an inch when you set your feet. When you set your feet, the problem is that half an inch, the shots are good enough that all of a sudden you don't even touch that puck. And it's six foot five. The yeah. size of these goalies, every puck should touch them before it goes in the net. If it doesn't, it means they're off their angle. So those are little things that they can adjust, and the goalie coaches are good enough uh, to make those adjustments. But, uh, you know, it, the other side of it, look at the goalies in the NHL. Russian, Swedish, Finnish. You know, Canadian and uh, American-born aren't as evident right now. So that's a, an issue that I think, um, you know, we, we have to address because you want to see more consistency of goalies coming from every every uh, background for sure well i'm gonna get into that with kevin woodley an hour or two but uh meantime uh congratulations again jamie uh looks great on you looks great on uh on the oakville blades uh the centennial cup next season in oakville at 16 mile sports complex thanks so much for stopping by today no worries thanks for having me Jamie Storr, uh, Oakville Blades president, former NHL goaltender with the Los Angeles Kings, the Carolina Hurricanes as well. So those are some of the issues and you know a couple of things that we'll talk to Woodley about and specifically Andre Vasilevsky and specifically because it continues to intrigue people. Um, the Leon Dreisaitl goal where he bounced it off the head, essentially, of Laurent Boissois from underneath the goal line. We've seen it before. Um, but nonetheless, this one really has people asking questions. Um, I know Woodley doesn't think that it's a matter of technique. It's a matter of performance that failed Boissois at that point, which is an interesting distinction to make, and we'll get into that with Woodley in a couple of moments um, at the bottom of Hour 2. But kicking off Hour 2, Jim Lights, Dallas Stars chairman, will talk to us about getting Peter Klima uh, well, essentially, was out of Germany because that's where the uh, the Czech national team was, where uh, him and Nick Polano got him, uh, and getting him into a, a Detroit Red Wings uniform back in 1985, August of 1985. Klima passed away last night, or yesterday rather, um, at the age of 58. So we'll talk to Lights in a couple of moments. Uh, in the meantime, want to remind you to visit. This is for our, our our Toronto listeners on 590. Visit the Sobeys Queensway store from 12 to 6 tomorrow for a Leafs fan appreciation appreciation party uh, there's games activities and giveaways plus a chance to meet leafs alumni join sports 590 the fan live on location tomorrow from one to five at sobey's queensway so that is the latest there uh again jim lights coming up here in a couple of moments you know one of the things if we have time get into this as well one of the things over the past i don't know 12 hours when i've mentioned to people that, that jim lights is coming on to talk about this, and then we end up talking about Dallas Stars issues. One of the things that keeps coming back is, at what point is Dallas going to get a new rink? 
Now, I was in Dallas not too long ago, and I like the rink. It's a real nice rink. like the organization, real great organization. Um, but, you know, Mark Cuban's barking about a new facility. Is there something new on the horizon with Dallas and a new arena? If we have time, we'll get into that with, uh, with Jim Lights in a couple of moments. Kevin Woodley coming up out of the hour. I always... It's always interesting trying to find the right place to put Woodley because, you know, the conversation can go like an hour, an hour and a half. Try to squeeze as much out of him as possible in the 20, 25 minutes we have with him. Uh, that's all coming up in Hour 2 of the Merrick Show across the Sportsnet Radio Network, simulcast on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet Now. Keep it here. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, welcome back to the program. Still uh, buzzing after hearing that Jim Light story. Back from 85 about getting Peter Klima out. We'll, uh, we'll make that available. Um, well, certainly on the podcast. We'll see what we can do and, and clip that up on, uh, and get it on social. But of anything from this week, if you're going to want to listen to it afterwards, go back and listen to it. Or if you're just missing and just tuning in now, the Jim Light story on getting Peter Klima, the late uh, Peter Klima um, out of the then Czechoslovakia is a fascinating story. And he just went detail to detail to detail to detail with it. Now, when you're talking about detail to detail to detail to detail, that's probably a good way to set up our next guest. He is Kevin Woodley from Ingoal Magazine and NHL.com, the most detail-oriented person in the business. True or false, Kev? Uh, <laughs> I guess it depends what business. Definitely not the goalie coaching world business because i'm i'm not part of that but like like see that's the thing like i translate everything i hear from the guys who are actually detailed i learn from the best from the nhl goalie right. coaches from goalie coaches all over the world and their details are exquisite so i don't have quite that level but i try to retain as much as i can so i can share it with everyone else Okay, so then let's use that as a jumping-off point then. From what you've been able to, because I'm sure you've had many conversations about this flashpoint moment in the playoffs, uh, and that is Game 1, Leon Dreisaitl scores four goals against the Vegas Golden Knights. Vegas still ends up winning, but we're all talking about the goal where Leon Dreisaitl banks it off the head of Laurent Bossois and in from underneath, from below, the goal line. So the conversation we had yesterday, me and Elliot on the program is, what is that? Like, what breaks down there? Is it, uh, is that a player, sorry, is that a goalie issue? Is that a technique issue? Uh, we do see this from every now and then. Um, point the finger of blame here. Is it the goaltender? Is it the goalie coach? Is it that style of play? What is it, Kevin? Well, I think the goalie union card requires me to blame Leon Dreisaitl first and foremost. For having enough skill and enough recognition <laughs> to take that off the head, um, but yeah. I, like I, I do think um, when we see this, the first thing we see, and I, I've, I've used this before, is, is all of a sudden all over the internet, it's it's reverse VH fail. Like the RVH, the, the position that Laurent Bossois was in yep. there, um, that position itself gets blamed for the failure. Uh, this is a failure of the position, and I think the more accurate statement would be it's a failure. It's not an RVH fail. It's a failed RVH. It's a failure of execution. And 
Okay. That's not like it's not totally dismissing that there are problems with our VH. That there are times when goalies overuse it. They use it as a crutch when they use it improperly. And because of that overuse, maybe because it's being overtaught, maybe for a lot of different reasons, it, there is criticism there. But is that a failure of the, the technique itself or a failure of application? I think a lot of the times it's a failure of application. And, you know, the comparison I would make, because you're under pressure. That's Leon Dreisaitl with the puck. And, yes, he's below the goal line. But he's, what, arguably the greatest passer in the game right now? And McDavid's starting oh, yeah. to make a cut down the slot into the slot. Yeah, he's got defensemen on him. And you're trying to read and process all of that in real time. Like, the butterfly fails too, right? Like, like goals go in because <laughs> goalies drop to their knees. And we don't say, get rid of it, just stand up. We try and teach more patience on the edges. And interestingly enough, I was getting into my car as you were talking with Elliot, and you were talking about five-hole goals. Like, I think that's a problem when, when – as much as we don't want to see pucks go through goalies, if we hammer that nothing through you mentality too much, what are we asking them to do? We're asking them to default down, drop, and seal, you know, as their priority rather than what we really want in a game that is increasingly east-west and dynamic is patience on the edges. So we have to be careful, I think, as coaches and as a community with what we say. Now, the way I believe that reverse VH failed in particular is like reverse VH is a position designed to seal the short side, to give you that short side seal, but also put your body in the net, give you net coverage. In the, before reverse VH, we had the traditional VH, where the lead pad was up against the post and the back pad yep. was dropped. Some called it one knee down. The back pad was dropped along the goal line, and that's how we sealed short side. But if you think about it, you sealed short side, you had coverage along the ice, and you were loaded for a push because you had, that, that, that you had your edge uh, engaged on that post with the leg that was up. But there was almost, like, other than that back pad, most of your body was outside the net. You had no net coverage. And in a game over the last five years where the biggest increase in offense, either directly or indirectly, based on the chances it creates, is plays, passes through the low slot line. 41% increase in the last five years in offense created by low slot line plays. And it doesn't always mean there's a backdoor tap-in because half the time it hits a leg or hits something in front or it's even someone at the, at the top mm-hmm. of the crease that redirects it. We need, bot- we need to have net coverage. Reverse VH gives you net coverage while sealing. It allows you to connect those two points. The priority, though, Jeff, should be, should be the seal. Like, that's our first priority. And so two things. One, you see uh, LB, Laurent Brassois, reach out with the paddle because he can see that Dreisaitl is looking to make a pass and he's got his stick up. And as soon as he reaches out with the paddle, a lot of goalies will go paddle down to block a low pass. As soon as you do that, you're disengaging your seal. You're pulling yourself out of that seal. You're giving him the option to bank it off you. The second part, and this depends on your coaching philosophy, um, but to get a good seal short side high, to completely take away that top corner of the net, the most important thing is your inside edge, the anchor edge, the skate that is inside the post that in, you can see Brassois using it in sort of rut, like almost like a rudder. He's pulling it back inside. 
that needs to be engaged, and he's got an edge. He's holding an edge. He's moving, but it's not. It's not. It needs to be a little flatter to the goal line to drive that coverage. I know a lot of coaches will teach it like 30 degrees from the goal line. That gives you a solid anchor, so that when you read that shot, if you're not all the way to the top of the post, you have that edge engaged to push up into that top top corner and take it away. Um, neither one of those things happen, whether it's because he didn't have that rudder set and anchored at 30 degrees or because he reached with the blocker first to hopefully bat mm-hmm. what he expected to be a pass out of the air. One of those two things, I don't know which part came first for him, but those things combined sacrifice the seal. And the whole point of the position is primarily to have that seal. And so once we break it, we leave ourselves exposed to, again, one of the best players in the world, giving him an option to bank that off us. Other coaches would teach you to have that blocker outside so you can maintain an active blocker rather than having that shoulder tucked inside the post. I don't know that that's the difference maker here, but it's just another factor. Okay, so one of the, and, and, and by the way, when other goalies see that play, like I'm curious about because we watch this and we'll focus so much on the the Dreisaitl point of view of it. When other goalies saw that goal, like what's the conversation? Like what's on the goalie group chats around that? Is it what you just pointed out, or do 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 you know other NHL goaltenders have different views on it? I'm just curious about the nature of the conversation amongst the goalie fraternity about that I one. Think for, God, we're spending I, a lot of time. I think on for this the goal, most part, so, we just what, what's the goalie fraternity say? Yeah, pretty much we okay, just walked so that, through. That's, like, that's like, most, like, you know, like, hey, which one it was? Because he had to sacrifice the seal because he, he wanted to cut off that pass. Um, you know, different guys that are taught that 30-degree angle, they'll identify that. Like, hey, that, that leg needs to be planted here. Again, like, there are no absolutes. It's actually what makes the position beautiful. So even within this discussion, right. there are no absolutes. And there are members of that fraternity, Jeff, that will agree that, hey, like, it's not just stand up, but – there wasn't a presence backdoor or top of the crease yet, even though McDavid's driving. And therefore, having that coverage in the middle of the net along the bottom of the ice wasn't yet a priority. So maybe from that distance, there are members of that community that would say, hey, I think you can still be on your skates here and, and trust yourself to transfer yeah. down and have that seal low. So there, there is a group that would say, Dreisaitl's right in that range, though. He's pretty close to the net. Like, you're right. That's that... Um, the trapezoid line for the goalie coaches that yep. will want you to be up longer, that's sort of a diff. Once it's inside there, some guys will say within a stick length, once that attacking player is within that range, you're outside a position where you have a chance to react and you should default to the blocking position. And he was sort of right in that range where that becomes the conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and this is the beauty. Like I, I'm not saying that the way Brossois handled it by being in reverse VH isn't absolute the right way to every person in the conversation. Um, but if you're going to be in it, then your priority is the short side seal. And there are elements of the way it was handled mm-hmm. that sacrifice that. Okay. Um, big picture here. The goaltender, and you've written about this at NHL.com recently. Um, of the goaltenders that are remaining right now, like I thought. Shosturkin was outstanding in the uh, in the in, in, in the first round of the playoffs. I uh, think he gave the Rangers every everything that he had. Um, but who's impressing you right now? Like game one wasn't great for Jake Ottinger, but the full body of work so far, one full round and, and a couple of games here, he continues to impress. But who turns your head as someone that follows this closely? Who are you watching? 
Well, I'm a big Jake Ottinger fan, and I, I, I mean, the interesting part here is like out of the, I was looking at clear sight numbers from the regular season and into the playoffs, and you know, in terms of their goal saved above expected for the regular season, uh, he's the only guy in the top ten that's still playing. And as to your point, Igor Shosturkin, no fault of his own, um, because he's great. even even now, even after being eliminated, he still leads the NHL playoffs in goals saved above expected and adjusted save percentage. Like Shosturkin was unbelievable. Beyond that, so like I'm I'm a big Ottinger guy, and we'll, like he's sort of if you're like, hey, who left on this list? Like, there's a lot of teams that are sort of I don't want to say, but like almost Colorado model here at this point, right? Like we're we're, we're, we don't we don't need our goaltender to win the Conn Smythe Trophy. Ottinger certainly is on the list of guys that you'd be like, hey, if this team were to go all the way to the Cup, is their goalie likely to be a Conn Smythe candidate? Ottinger's on that list. The other guy that's on that list that might surprise some people um, based on the past couple of seasons is, is frankly, Philip Grubauer. Um, he, he was, you know, I covered that Seattle series, at least the Seattle portion of it, um, for NHL.com down in Seattle. And by the way, like just epic atmosphere down there right now. Um, and oh, he great. was, it, looked oh, awesome. it, it, it feels as good too. like the press box is suspended. Um, so it, it sort of shakes the wrong word. It swings a little bit. So as somebody who doesn't like heights, but <laughs> not my favorite thing to feel that swing in there, but pretty cool when the building's loud uh, enough that, uh, that you can have that. Um, but yeah, he, he was like, he was a massive part of that first round. I, I don't think it was overlooked. Yeah. Um, you know, I know last night was obviously a little rougher, but uh, he's he's a guy that's in that conversation. If Seattle were to advance, you know, he stays in that conversation. And then obviously, you know, what, what Bob has done, um, you know, these last couple of games in particular, uh, not necessarily from start to finish, because there's been hiccups there before, uh, and even including in these playoffs, but um, obviously the level he's produced, I actually don't even know if it's like, quite what everyone else is making out to be the last couple of games, but yesterday was brilliant by Bobrovsky. So to see him sort of recapturing a little bit of that, you know, two-time Vesna trophy winner magic uh, has been fun as well. And he'd be a guy who's in that conversation. Matthews, Nylander, and John Tavares all went to bed with nightmares about Sergei Bobrovsky last night. Um, they might want a to couple stop of minutes targeting the block. You. Wanna... What's they, that? They might. They might want to stop targeting. It's like they're looking blocker all the time. And I know, I know Elliot had it and I had it in my pre-scout, like eight, eight goals on the blocker side um, in the first round. I would assume mm-hmm. that their pre-scout goes a little beyond just the fact that eight goals went in there in the first round. But like I've charted over yeah. 400 on him over the last number of years. And blocker has never been a statistical issue. As a matter of fact, statistically, he gives up more on the glove side relative to the rest of the league. Um, now those aren't save percentages, mm. but even, even the way he like, watch the way he chokes down on his stick. He holds it down on the paddle a little bit, like, but, and he'll drop it. He did it a couple times already. He will actually drop his stick to prioritize access with the blocker. Uh, he holds it out in front. He keeps it square. He does get low and wide. So maybe high shots over the blocker. But to be honest with you, when I break down his game, I, I look at it and I'm like, yeah, they, they keep going there. So obviously they see something. And smarter people than I in, in Curtis Sanford that are doing those pre-scouts. But, you know, historically and what I look at in terms of the way he holds, handles, and manages his blocker and doesn't let the stick prioritize his coverage compared right. to his blocker, the way he doesn't turn on shots and try and make blocker saves parallel to his body, the way he cuts pucks out on front, 
I, I'm not seeing it, frankly. So I'd be curious to see if they continue to go after it. Do, do you uh, do you not see Seattle doing the same thing to Ottinger though? Like, is there not like a disproportionate amount of shots towards the blocker with Seattle? Certainly noticed it last night for sure. Um, and, and this, you know, what this takes me back to the Vasilevsky conversation, right? About screens. Right. Andre Vasilevsky yeah. has given up more goals than anyone in the NHL in the last five years on screens, but he's still above expected. He actually performs above expected. Nobody's seen more. So is it a weakness? I mean, he's above expected. He, he does better than the average goaltender on this. But he graded out about 19th or 20th in the league. And in all the other types of scoring chances, he's like top five, top ten. So weakness is relative. Um, if I'm shooting on Jay Gottinger and I know how, how damn good that glove is, I'm probably targeting the other side. And so you probably need a save yeah. percentage to tell you which one is better. And I don't have a save percentage. But it's pretty clear from last night they've picked the side they think they have a better chance on, and that's not the glove. And like I said, that may have to do more with how good the glove is than it is about the blocker being weak. Okay, really quick. i got about 45 seconds. Unfair to, to, to ask you to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Well, I spent 10 minutes um, discussing RVH. That's why. It's my fault. That's okay. Now I'm going to ask you to be economical. In 45 seconds, can you explain the New Jersey situation right now you know we've talked about goaltenders that have come in to save the season we think of phoenix copley right with the los angeles kings comes in saves the season um uh, alex lyon with the florida panthers akira schmid last game wasn't great three and 11 got it got the hook what should we look for with this goaltender um listen like like I think there, there's not a deep book on him, and that's part of it. We've seen this in the past. We've seen it with Matt Murray in Pittsburgh, right? When he comes out of there, like, you don't have the tape. You don't have yeah. the familiarity. You don't have the ability to break him down. At the end of the day, when he came into the series, the best thing I could do was, was look where I trust with ClearSight Analytics, and I looked at their numbers from the regular season. And, yes, tiny sample, but only two goalies in the National Hockey League during the regular season had a higher – adjusted save percentage than Akira Schmidt, and they were Linus Allmark and Philip Gustafson. So he has the ability, clearly, to play at a high level. Sustaining it in the playoffs when the other team builds a pre-scout quickly and starts to go after, again, weaknesses isn't even fair. It's relative weaknesses compared to strengths. It's difficult. The pressure and all those things. By all accounts, he handles the pressure well. I actually thought the Rangers did a really poor job of attacking glove side in Game 7. They scored a couple there in Game 6. And they kept going there in game seven. Well, in one-on-one situations, mano a mano, you're actually better to shoot low glove on Schmidt because he holds it up like a stop sign. Fingers up is what we call it. And shooters are taught to shoot low glove one-on-one. Where you want to shoot high glove is when he's moving east to west and he drops it into more of a blocking position. He lowers it while he moves and then pulls it back up. And I thought the Rangers got that dead opposite on their best scoring chances in game seven. And he made those saves. And as a result, he's moving on. He's still obviously a really good goaltender, Jeff, but it's it's being able to yeah. mitigate those strengths and weaknesses and attack them that matters. Taking us right to the very end of the show. You're the best, bud. Thanks so much for this. Enjoy the weekend. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. Merrick Show returns on Monday.